think if you, if you think about your past, you probably had these moments where your life stood at a crossroads. When you look back, you saw it. Maybe you didn't even see it at the time, but you were at this crossroads. I so love the music of Keith Green, and I appreciate Corey for being willing to learn that and play it, as well as the whole band. That music was part of a crossroads of my life. I didn't know it at the time. I was just kind of going along. But just to recognize and look at someone who is so passionate about his relationship with the Lord and could, could sing about Jesus in a way that lined up with what Scripture said, but with passion and music that didn't sound like it was made in a tin can and was terrible. So good. And ultimately, he would just say, I don't care what people think. I do not care because I'm going to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing that God appoints men and women in our lives to look at that. And how gracious God is to take us in our lives. Essentially, we do choose things, but he guides our paths and he sets us in the right direction. I love it. For my reward is giving glory to you. That should be our reward this morning. We've got a tradition at our church that we kneel when we pray. That's to demonstrate with our bodies that we are below Jesus. He's the king and we worship him and we pray to him. So if you're able, I, pray, I ask that you kneel with me as we pray or get in a position of uh, submission. And it's good to do this. We do things with our bodies to remind us of the truth. Lord Jesus, you're so good to take a fool and a rebel like me and use me. And you've done that with all these people who are gathered together this morning. You're gracious, loving, kind, and good. And we praise you for that this morning. We need your help by your spirit to understand the truth of your word. We can't do it apart from you. So I ask for that this morning, that we would know the truth of your word and that would do something to our hearts and our lives would be changed from that in the way that we lived so that the whole world would see that and they would be jealous of us because of what you're doing in us. And that would cause them to turn to you and want to be with you and to see your beauty. God, we cannot do these things alone to understand them, even to proclaim them. This is all through you and your power. So we ask for that to be displayed through the message that's preached as well as the way that we eagerly receive your word this morning. We pray in your name, Jesus, amen. All right, kids, you can go. If you are a Summit student um, and you're interested in helping out with the kids, this tr- the training that uh, is planned for you is also now. We've been in the book of Titus. We're not going to start in Titus, but if you want to kind of get a preview, turn to Titus 2 right now. That way you don't have to worry about turning to Titus 2 later on. We've been talking about being calibrated as a church that works. I don't know what those tools are. They look really cool. I don't know how to use those tools, but it's all about calibration. It's about being aligned to sound teaching, healthy teaching from the word of God. It's easy sometimes when we look at scripture to say like, I want instructions. Teach me to do things. If that's what you're looking for this morning, you will get that. You will not receive it specifically by me. The Holy Spirit of God will work in your heart to do that. So if you're looking for that from me, you're gonna be really annoyed with this message this morning. Frustrated, like get to the point, man, get to the point. But the point is the beauty of God, the beauty of God. If you read the passage now, you'll be like, where's beauty in that? Well, we will get to that and you will understand. 
Corey already referenced this psalm. King David wrote this. One thing I ask the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing, one thing I've asked the Lord that I will seek after. This is the one thing that I want. Kind of like the pinnacle that I'm looking for is to do these things, to, to seek after you, God. But I want to be with you, God, because I want to look at you. I want to look at you because you're beautiful. And I want to be able to ask you questions. I want to inquire of the Lord in his temple. So I have a question to start. It's a rhetorical question. If it doesn't make you think, please have more coffee or something because I don't know what's wrong with you. Let's go to that next question that's up on the screen. What would you give up so that you could see the beauty of the Lord? What would you give up so that you could see the beauty of the Lord? So we just came out of a season at the end of October. Uh, My older son, Hunter, went trick-or-treating and he got approximately 7,000 pounds of candy um, in in the trick-or-treating bag. It's unbelievable what some of these neighborhoods pass out. And there's this, this tradition that we have with trick-or-treating, right? And it's trading. So my younger son, Brock, I try to do trades with him. He's very uh, highly prizes candy, you might say it that way. So I'm like, hey, I've got this gumball that looks like a human eye. Like, pretty nice, pretty nice. Uh, would you trade that for a Reese's Take Five? And he gives you this look that's like, don't even insult me with that offer of a gumball eyeball for a Reese's Take Five. They're not even on the same quality of candy. Don't insult me with that trade. But what would you trade to see the beauty of the Lord? What would you trade to see the beauty of the Lord? Jesus talks about this. He gives a parable. We can see it on the screen. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And then a guy goes and finds it. And then he covers it up. He's so excited. So imagine you're walking through a field. You stub your toe. You try not to say a bad word because your toe hurts so bad. And then you open the box that you realize that you tripped over. And it is filled with unbelievable amounts of gold bullion. Spanish gold bullion. I don't know what that means, but it sounds cooler, doesn't it? Spanish gold bullion. That's the best. He realizes, I have something here that is of great value. So he covers it up. He goes and he's joyful. He sells everything that he has. His house, his chariots, everything he has so that he can go and buy that field. Why? Because he knows that there's something in the field that in the long term is of greater value. The kingdom of God is also, kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who's in search of fine pearls. And then he finds a pearl that is just so beautiful. He's like, I must give everything for this. I'm going to, everything I have, I'm selling everything that I have to get this one pearl because it is worth so much. Do you see the point that the Lord is making in these parables? What are you willing to give up to see the beauty of the Lord? Do you value the beauty of the Lord? Beauty, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts? We see this in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. 
For a day, one day in your courts is better than a thousand outside of your courts. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Do you get the idea that the psalmist wants us to understand here? There's loveliness in being in God's presence. Now at the time, he understood the presence of God to to reside in God's temple, his house. So he's like, I want to go there. I want to be with you, God. It's not specifically about a temple. It is about God's presence. I want to be with you, God. Can I see you? Can I be with you? Can I talk to you? That's what my soul longs for. It's better, one day and that would be better than doing anything else. A thousand times. Awesome things. And then he says this, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked, in the tents of wickedness. I think in the ESV it says. Doorkeeper, it's in red there, so you'll look at it. Think about being a doorkeeper. What does that involve? First thing that's really cool that maybe we don't think of first. A doorkeeper lets people in and out. A doorkeeper lets people in and out. That is a great privilege when you think about the context of God's kingdom. But we would think of a doorkeeper as someone lowly. You're the first person there when you're the doorkeeper, right? Because you unlock the door so that everyone can come in. And then you wait for the people to have 70 cups of coffee before you're going to leave. So you're the last one out as well. When you're the door warden or the keeper of the doors, you're the first one there to unlock the doors and then you wait until everyone's gone. You are a servant worker and it is better to be a servant worker in the kingdom of heaven that is in God's presence than to do anything else. One more question. This too is rhetorical. What would you give up so that others could see the beauty of the Lord? What would you give up so that others could see the beauty of the Lord? This question is intentionally written to be piercing, to make you think, to ponder and wonder, where am I selfish? Where do I think of others? Where do I put myself before others in thinking of them? What would you give up? Would you give up an eyeball gumball? Yeah, you'd probably do that. Would you give up your version of the Reese's Take Five that others could see the beauty of the Lord? This morning, we're going to look at Titus 2, just two verses, 9 and 10. And we're going to look at this, God's beautiful why for humility. When I first started reading the Bible when I was a kid, I didn't really get anything. So I just read it enough to memorize it to get the prize at church, right? That's how... We kind of rolled at that time. But as God um, became real to me and understood this is not just something that my parents want me to do, but God is real and I want to follow him, I started understanding his word in a real and different way. And that is, these are indeed instructions, but these are telling God telling me about himself. He wants me to do things. God wants me to do things and he wants you to do things, but he always has a very beautiful why or why he wants us to do those things. So we're going to review Titus 2. If you didn't have a chance to see all of them or listen to them, Titus chapter 2. It's a letter written to the church in Crete. And there's all these different groups of people. So written to leaders, the leaders are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now this is not just teach sound doctrine, although that's true, we want to teach sound doctrine, but also what accords with sound doctrine, what goes along with sound doctrine. Soundness is healthiness. 
So we're gonna teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then there's these groups. Older men are to do things. Ultimately, this is about high character. You're to be high character, older men. High character. And then older women. The bulk of this section of scripture is to the older women. You're to be high character as well, but then to be teachers of what is good and so train the younger women to live rightly. Do you remember this as we went through these passages? Leaders, older men, older women, and then younger women are supposed to receive that teaching from the older women. So be coachable, be teachable. If the older women are to teach you, you have to be teachable. You have to be able to receive the word of God. Be trainable. Then to younger men, maybe this is an indicator of uh, younger men's capacity to receive training. One instruction, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. And then the passages go back to leaders in terms of teaching. Hey, you have to walk the walk. You have to be an example. You have to model good works. You can't be up in the pulpit and say one thing and then not live your life out in that fashion. And you have to teach with purity. So you remember these groups? So there's groups. There's men and women. It's important to recognize that Scripture talks to men and women. That is, God does not see this as, oh, I can just say one thing to everyone. Men and women are different. And in some cases require different instruction. We certainly see that in verses 3 to 6. But there's another group that we're going to look at today. Bond servants. Bond servants. What is a bond servant? Well, we'll get to that. But bond servants, this instruction, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Do you have that place marked in your Bible? Are you there? Can you, can you look at it or on your phone? Good. So this idea of bond servants. Now, uh, something that's important, a teaching point. What you are reading, unless you are way more remarkable than I understand any of us to be right now, what you are reading on that is a translation of the original letter that was written to Titus, right? And because we read, we read translations of the Bible, when we do that, we're inherently entrusting the way that we understand the Bible to the translators in some part. You don't even know that you're doing it either. But you're trusting the translator of the Bible to express an idea and to, to help you understand meaning of things as you read it. And you don't even know that you're doing it. So this should keep you humble, right? You have to look into scripture. You have to seek out what, what God wants for you. And you have to be careful as well, right? So remember, you're reading a translation. And what happens when translations uh, don't work very well? Well, we're going to look at a few examples on the screen. First one, uh, this is from an airport in India. Eating carpet, strictly prohibited. Um, and if you can see in the bottom right, it says, by order. So this is a mistranslation. Eating carpet, strictly prohibited. Not just a suggestion, this is by order. No eating of carpet, Let's look at the next one. So you're getting a burger. 
And they're like, they ask, it's a fancy place. It's not just American. And they're like, do you want provolone? Do you want cheddar? Do you want gouda? Do you want uh, what feta you could get on a burger? And then they're like, well, you could also get the paralysis cheese. (laughs) This is a mistranslation of a word. Syrian paralysis cheese. Do not recommend it. Um, And then one more. Somewhere in a French-speaking country, there was this sign outside the pool. I can't speak French, but anyone who is obeying the swimming pool regulations may be required to leave. I don't, I don't know how you function in a pool environment if everyone who's obeying the regulations has to leave. You're basically left with the family that was at that pool, remember, Heather? Uh, where they basically just abandoned their kids there and expected everyone else to take care of them. Uh, long story, ask me about it some other time. But... Obeying the swimming pool regulations may be required to leave. These are examples of when something is just obviously mistranslated. The beauty of God's word is that so many people protected by the spirit of God have had their eyes and minds on his word and it's been preserved so that there are not these types of translations. There's not Syrian paralysis cheese in the Bible. There's not eating of carpet in the Bible. There's not those kinds of mistranslations because God by his sovereign will has preserved it working through the, the minds and the pens of men and women throughout the ages. But there's still a unique kind of difficulty in translating texts from different cultures. Here's the quote from the ESV, the preface to the ESV Bible that you can see on the screen. So if you look at this sometime, the, I know usually we, like, we don't look at the maps of Paul's mis- missionary journeys in the back of the Bible, right, that are in there, and we don't look at the preface. But it's interesting because in the ESV, they explain kind of their mindset and philosophy of how they want to translate. And there's this quote. There's a particular difficulty that's presented when words in biblical Hebrew and Greek, the primary languages of Scripture, refer to ancient practices and institutions that do not correspond directly to those in the modern world. You see that? So you can translate the word exactly right. You can be Mr. or Mrs. Accuracy and like, this is accurate, I've got this historically. But there are concepts that don't fit into our brains because they're not part of our present culture. So when you look at, for example, Verse 9 of Titus 2. You will see this depending on what translation of Scripture you read. In the NIV, you'll read, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything. Teach slaves. When you hear the word slave, or you think of the idea of slavery, what happens inside you? I would imagine, if you're anything like me, you think of... uh, pre-Civil War America, don't you? You think of plantations. You think of people being taken in war and servitude and dehumanized. So slavery means something to us. Is that what Paul was thinking of when he wrote it to Titus? Slavery. Uh, King James Version. If we look at it, exhort servants that they're to be obedient unto their own masters. Now, servanthood... uh, Still not something that we would say is a glamour position, right? But different in our minds than slavery. So we read that and we're like, okay, servanthood, I get that. I'm serving someone. Not the same as slavery. Which one is right? I don't know. And then the ESV, which we tend to preach out of in our church, says bond servants. And this might be even more confusing because in our culture, like we have this idea of slavery. We also have this idea of servanthood. We have no idea whatsoever unless we've been taught in church or maybe we're a history nerd of what a bond servant actually is. No idea what that is. 
So the bondservant in ancient, I'm gonna tell you right now, the bondservant in ancient Rome, this is also from the ESV preface, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract, remember that, contract, to serve his master for seven years, that could be his or her master, depending. When the contract expired, the person was freed, given a wage that had been saved by the master, and officially declared a freed man. So you get it? We have no scope of that in our culture. That's not the way that we think about even the idea of servanthood. But that's the concept that existed in the Roman Empire when Paul was writing this letter to Titus. Here's something that's important that we need to to think about. And it would be this. No one at Summit Church, so none of you that I'm speaking to right now are slaves, servants, or bondservants that are the same as that that Paul was writing about in his letter to Titus. We aren't. And this raises a challenge for us where it's, it's like, well, if I'm not that, right? If I, just, I work at a bank. I'm not a servant. I cut lawns for a living and do landscaping. I, I'm not a slave. Well, what does this passage matter to us then in those things? If, if this is not for us, right? If this is not written to me, Like, I'm not a bondservant in the sense that Paul was thinking in terms of relationships to other people. I'm not a servant. I'm not a slave. What is the application of this passage? What do we do with this passage? Here's the awesome two passages. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So this passage that we're reading today was breathed out by God. This is from God, and he intends that we uh, are taught with it. It's profitable for that, that there's reproof with it. In other words, it's telling me where I'm wrong with something, and there's correction with it. That is, it's directing me in the right way to go so that I can do what God wants for my life, which is to live out good works. But a level of depth to that, look at Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when I'm preaching and you're listening and you're focused on what God's word says, God is doing something in your heart and your mind so that you might understand what he would have you do. So in terms of uh, whether or not it's servant or slave or bond servant, God is working in your heart even now by the power of his word to convict you of the direction that he wants you to go. And you can run away from it, ask Jonah how that went, or you can obey what God's word says. So that's what we're going to look at. Verse nine at the start of it. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, in everything. God instructs his people to respect authority. I was having lunch, a blessing with my dad yesterday. They swung through. They were visiting my niece in Grand Rapids. And on their way home to Chicago, they stopped and we had lunch together. Um, and I, he was like, oh, what are, what's being preached? What's the passage? My, my father's a man of God. I have a ton of respect for him. Um, and we kind of walked a bit really quickly through this outline. Um, 
that bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. And I said, well, really, this is about people respecting authority. And my dad says, well, people hate that. But don't we? God is against rebel hearts. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we receive instructions from people, especially people in authority, there is something in our flesh that instantly tightens up and says, no, I'm not going to do that. Parents, if you don't understand this, what are you doing in watching your children? Because that's what children are all about. But that feeling that you feel when you receive direction from someone who's in authority, you naturally in your flesh just want to do the opposite. You're against authority in our flesh. We are that. God instructs his people to respect authority. This is particularly difficult for people who live and are part of the United States of America because our founding was based on rebellion. There is a tyrant king. Right? He was against us. How did we come out from under that? Well, that could be a long story, but essentially through rebellion. We love in the United States of America the idea of rebellion. Right? When you're watching Star Wars and the, the, the rebel troops are like pinned down and then the X-wing fighters fly over, da, 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 you're like, yes, defeat the empire. The empire's evil. There's something in our hearts, in our flesh, and then in our cultural and societal makeup where we love and are enamored with the idea of rebellion. And we are okay with the idea of rebellion as long as we deem it to be okay. God instructs his people to respect authority. God is against rebel hearts. Look at the instruction to the bondservant. You submit to your own mass, be submissive to their own masters and everything. First idea here is submission. That is to place yourself underneath the authority of. That's what submission is. You could also say, subject yourselves to. It doesn't say, when we look at God's word, subject yourselves to anyone or submit to everyone, does it? It says to your own masters. We have to understand that this submission is within a defined relationship. So bondservant, remember that contractual obligation? That is a defined relationship. Children to your parents, that is a defined relationship. Let's look at some biblical examples of the idea of self-subjection. That second one, all things to Jesus, that's not really self-subjection. It's just so important that I had to put it in there. Jesus submitted to God the Father. He submitted himself to God the Father. If it's good enough to submit to authority for Jesus, it's good enough for you. All things Jesus will subject to himself. Just too cool not to put it in the sermon. How he does that. Read the end of Philippians 3. Bang. Amazing. People are submit to, to submit to governing or ruling authorities. Oh man, that's the one that we just want to cross out in our Bibles, especially after the past three years, don't we? We want to cross it out. Read those passages. Take a picture of it right now with your phone. Romans 13, Titus 3 will be there soon. And then 1 Peter 2, that should be convicting for ourselves. Slaves to masters, servants to masters, bond servants to masters. The church to Jesus the church to each other. That's Ephesians 4 or 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ Jesus. The church to church leaders. 
wives to husbands, and children to parents. Do you see that the idea of self-subjection to authority is not a one-off in Scripture? It's not like, well, that, that was contextual to that. No, this is a common theme all throughout God's Word to submit to people in authority. How do you do that? Well, it says in Scripture, they are to be, look at uh, the middle of verse 9 there, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Servants do this by building trust and showing trustworthiness. You're to be well-pleasing. In everything, be well-pleasing. How do you be well-pleasing to someone? A great way to start is to think, what would be well-pleasing to me? Would that match up with what this person in authority is expecting? So, you're to be well-pleasing. You're to, to gain approval is another way you could think of that idea. And then there's two negatives that Paul writes. Because Paul, by the Holy Spirit of God and also by experience, he just understands people so well. Be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. Two things, not argumentative. Now, who here is uh, like a boss at work? Like you have employees or you own a business? Just put your hands up, right? We have some people who are, yeah. Do you want someone who is a yes man at work? Someone who is just say, yeah, whatever you want, boss. Do you want that? I'm thinking of business owners. I am in charge of people at work. I do not want... People who say yes to everything that I say. It would be a disaster of a business because it would only be my ideas, which leads nowhere good. So what does that mean then? It means don't be a constant voice of opposition. Here's things that I wrote in my notes. Paul is saying, don't dispute in, under to, in, in, in uh, order to thwart don't sabotage. Don't try to take control. So if you have an idea that differs from someone in authority over you, that's completely fine. The way that you voice that is very important, and your motives are of utmost importance. The goal is not to be against, not to try to thwart your boss, not to try to um, usurp the authority that the God has given that person in authority over you. So don't dispute in order to thwart thwart. And not pilfering. Don't take what is not yours. So there's this broad idea of stealing, right? When you take something that's not yours, we get that. It's in the Ten Commandments. What is pilfering? That's when um, maybe you're in charge of the books for a company, right? And you're in a place where you're alone with the books because that's your job, your responsibility. And when you're taking in receipts, you're kind of like, 99 for you and one for me. 50 for this, or 49 for this and one for me. That's what pilfering is. It's stealing in secret. You can think of this in two ways that I think of in our modern culture. First of all, just plain money, because it happens all the time. How are you stealing money? How are you pilfering money? Are you doing that? But then also time that would be expected you to be serving that employer. So time and money, not pilfering. 
Instead of that, you're, you're to show all good faith. What does that mean? When we see faith, it is very likely that our brains will immediately go to like saving faith, like your Ephesians 2 style faith in scripture, right? But really, this is about trustworthiness. The servant's behavior is supposed to demonstrate that they can be completely trusted, completely trusted in all situations. Why is this the case? And this is really so that your life and the servant's life will demonstrate that God's word produces trustworthy people. Humility always highlights the beauty of God's word. Look at uh, the end there of 10. Why, do, why are servants, bondservants, slaves supposed to do these things? So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Humility always highlights the beauty of God's word. If you're looking for something to do this afternoon, write down 1 Corinthians 1. End of 1 Corinthians 1. Just write it down and read through it. And you will see that God has this plan for all time that everything would be done so that no one, no human could take credit, but he gets credit for everything. And he does that by subjecting himself to things that we should have been subjected to. Humility always highlights the beauty of God's word. Your willingness, whether you think of yourself as a mere employee whether you think of yourself as a servant, whether you would uh, in some strange aspect of our culture be a bond servant, even if someone is a slave, they are to think of their opportunity that God has given them as a, I have to be willing to submit myself to something so that my humbleness will draw proper attention to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's interesting when you think about adorning. The word there, um, Cosmeo is the Greek word. And it has to do with, cos- like we get our word cosmetics from that, cosmetics. So it's the idea that you're, you're putting something on something to put it in order, right? Your willingness to humble yourself draws proper attention the beauty of the gospel. You cannot make the gospel any better than it already is. As we've learned throughout chapter two, you can certainly draw away from it, right? That the word of God would be reviled. We don't want the word of God to be reviled, right? And then at the end of verse eight, it talks about that as well. But we're to adorn the doctrine of God our savior. And the way that that's written when Paul wrote it, it's really that we may adorn the doctrine of our savior, God. Salvation. Are we highlighting the beauty of, of God's transformative power in our lives? Are we drawing attention to that with our lives? Because if you argue with your boss all the time, if you try to use your words to trick your boss into getting your own way, the boss being an example, anyone that would have authority over you, if you're stealing from and then you're found out, even if it's in secret, none of that adorns the doctrine of our savior, God, takes away. But when you live in a way that is not humanly possible, It's impossible for the world to look at you and say, God's doing something to that person. How do they do that? God gives us many helpful examples in his word 
to understand this. But we're going to look at two of them in closing. There's a helpful example in wives. 1 Peter 3. I know a number of women went through 1 Peter uh, together. 1 Peter 3. And if you're not a wife, that is you're an unmarried woman or whatever, or you're a man, this is still God's word. It still pierces your heart to get to the thoughts and intentions that are going on with you. There is something for everyone in the word of God. Likewise, wives, be subject. It's the same word that Paul wrote to Titus. Be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Then the idea of adornment is really explained. Don't let your adorning be external, braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. Don't let it be that, but be this. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Women, you have a beautiful example for those of you who are wives to demonstrate the truth of God's word in living out your life. In some cases, so powerful that an unbelieving husband could come into relationship with Jesus Christ with you saying nothing at all, but just by living according to his word. I can't do that because I can't be a wife because of how God has ordained his world to be ordered. You wives have that power in Jesus Christ. Don't let the world fool you into thinking that you are not important because the world highlights things uh, that that, that seem to be powerful but actually aren't. You wives have a power that is a beautiful thing according to the word of God. So when you have the opportunity... I don't think this, this verse is so much about wearing pajama pants and sweatshirts instead of gold jewelry. I think it is about consider what God is doing in your heart and live your life in such a way that you show that God's word is powerful and beautiful. Are wives the best example we have in scripture? Like powerful, there's always a better example. You know who it is. Jesus. Our greatest example is Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 16 to 24. Again, we see the verb, be subject. Subject yourselves to your own masters. Be subject to your masters, what? With all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. That is, even if your master is a total jerk, and doesn't treat you rightly. You're to follow the example of Christ Jesus. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Then look at the example we have of Jesus Christ. He didn't do anything wrong. So I, I cannot say that. I have done many things wrong. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. I have not had a pure mouth, both in terms of my attitude towards speaking people and just outright telling lies. So I'm disqualified from this. Jesus is not. He committed no sin, did nothing wrong, lived a perfect life and said nothing wrong and had no wrong motives. Jesus is perfect. When he was reviled, that is when people talked trash about him, he did not revile in return. How hard is that for us to do? When we are reviled, what we want to do is talk smack right back to someone else's face. 
Like, you're wrong. Well, you're ugly. That's not what Jesus did. He committed no sin. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. That is, when he was feeling pain, he did not lash out to try to stop it. He endured the pain, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is, Jesus' humility. Look what it produced then. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Because of the humility of the Christ, we have an example of how we're to live our lives. And that humility is what draws people to Jesus Christ to see the beauty of his word. Yes, we're just proclaim the truth. We try to do that here often. Yes, the proclamation of the truth then does something in the people of God, and they're equipped then to speak the truth and love to one another. So we're not downplaying the things that we must speak, but all of our lives must be lived in submission to those authorities over us. Why? So that we demonstrate that our faith and our confidence is fully in God and not in our circumstances. Because apart from Jesus Christ, no one can do that. We in Jesus Christ are the only ones who have the power to be able to do that. And it is alluring and attracting and it draws great attention to the truth of the doctrine of our Savior God. Do we recognize that? Let's take one minute now to look forward to next week. We've been memorizing the passage, the end of this, uh, Titus 2. For the grace of God has, someone help me, come on, some of you have been doing it, right? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing, yeah, salvation for all people. Good. Man, Ben, thank you. Quick, he's like quick draw passage guy. Excellent. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope If you were at the doctrine class this morning, you were like, that's so good. In this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Can you go back to the last slide? Yeah. God saved you. That's Titus 2.11. God saved you. God has a pardoning grace that works powerfully in your life and is now working within you. Right in this moment, God is working within you. That's Titus 2.12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions so that he will produce in us a life that causes people to say God's word is beautiful. That's why God calls us to humility. It's the right thing because we are beneath him, but he has an intention for the way that we live our lives, a purpose, a mission, and a vision for our lives. And that, that, that's that people around us would look at us and say, oh my goodness, that is so beautiful that God would take something like that and turn it into something that could submit to something, even when it's unjust and unfair and hard and difficult. Only God could do that. Praise God. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for the power of your gospel. But thank you for the truth of your gospel as well. It's, it's not just pardoning. It's power to change us and to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that truth when we face unjust situations, when we are reviled, 
when we suffer and when we are treated unfairly. Help us to remember Jesus Christ, that he too dealt with those things. But because he won, we can look to him. And now we are filled with his power by by your spirit, God, to live in a way that adorns the, the beautiful doctrine of God, our Savior. Where we fall and become haughty and proud, help us to be like Jesus. When we experience good, help us to remember that this is uh, not that we might boast, but our only boast might be in you. And when we just need a push to take the next step, God, give us that push because we want you to do it. That people would look at our lives being transformed by you and say, God is so beautiful. Amen.